Welcome to Three Houses, One Podcast, where we talk about writing, self-publishing, and publishing industry issues. My name's Sarah, and I am joined, as always, by my friends Brittany and Rigney. This week, we are going to be diving into books that we think all writers should have to succeed, to reference, to just have on a shelf and look pretty. So before we dive in, does anyone have some housekeeping? I do. Okay, so the best way that you can support us, if you're just sitting there listening, thinking, how... How can I support these wonderful people in a better way? We would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to the very podcast that you're listening to. That would help us a lot. It doesn't cost a dime, and it would it would help us a lot. Um, we started this podcast to get in depth, more in depth, to topics that we already kind of cover on the blog. But this way, you know, you can listen to it as you're doing your cleaning things and just going about your daily business, and you just have some lovely writer topics in your in your ears um you can also support us at patreon patreon.com slash three houses press or you can read more about these topics that we get into at our blog threehousespress.com that'll do it for me this month neato all right so today we are talking about books that we think you should have as a writer um i think it's an important issue because I feel like you go to any sort of, you know, Barnes and Noble or whatever your local bookshop is and you go to this like reference section and there are just so many options there to choose from. And I feel like it's really easy to get caught up in this mentality that there's a book that can fix everything. And we're here to tell you what books are going to fix everything. Um, and there's definitely one that I think stands out more than others as something every writer should own, and that would be Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Yeah, so Elements of Style is one of the books that, I mean, I have had that referenced by several English professors throughout my college years. You know, I had it in undergrad, and then I had it again when I was going for my master's degree as a required reading. And... Um, as Sarah mentioned, it is written by Strunk and White, White being E.B. White. And it's just this small, compact book. It's short. It's portable. You can carry it with you anywhere you go. It's really slim, easy to read. And it's just a great reference for grammar, but it's also a great reference for how to write clearly and succinctly in a way that doesn't sacrifice quality of writing. You know, I think depending on what um, manual that you use, whether it's like AP or Chicago, you know, there's always going to be these kind of do's and don'ts. Elements of Style does give you these do's and don'ts, but it comes at it from a more practical standpoint of like, do this and here's an example But it also takes it a step further to explain the artistry behind that instruction. It really is built on the idea that your writing should be quality, your writing should matter, your writing should be engaging and interesting to read for your reader. And you should, as a writer, be making it as easy as possible for your readers to read your writing. You know, don't be too wordy in places. And Um, you know, omit needless words is a good one, you know, where they say um, many expressions violate the principle, you know, of using needless words. Instead of saying the question as to whether, just say whether, you know, um, he is a man who 
just say he, you know, eliminate a lot of those words. So that way your sentences and your paragraphs don't get mired down and your reader is like working overtime to read things that are needlessly complicated. And so many authors and publishers use this book as a reference on a regular basis. And I just can't say enough about it. It's so short. You're going to be able to get through it in like an hour. And I don't know. I just can't say enough about it. I highly recommend it. Super small, pretty inexpensive. Just go buy yourself a copy and keep it on your shelf. It is a short and sweet but packs a punch little little book that will really, truly, we're not kidding, help you be a better writer. The second book we're going to recommend, or I should say that I'm going to recommend because I am forcing this down the other two's throat because they have not read it, um, but it's Save the Cat Writes a Novel. So some background on this one. Save the Cat was originally written by Blake Snyder um, as a screenwriter's guide, and it mapped out 15 story beats, um, essentially saying that if you follow these story beats, you are going to have a successful movie in the end. And Jessica Brody applied these 15 beats to her novel writing, um, found it still works the same way, and then over time developed kind of the novelist version of Save the Cat and created Save the Cat Writes a Novel. So there are 15 beats that she says are essential for every story. And what I think makes this handy is whether you're kind of somebody who really wants to plot something in advance, you can go through and you can map this out using her system. Um, if you're in the middle of writing a book from the seat of your pants and you get stuck, you can kind of step back. You can look at this and go, okay, around this part of the book, this is what I should be accomplishing. And then if you're editing, if you are getting reflections that, you know, the pacing's not there or the plot's a little funky, you can really kind of use that to kind of clean up the excess and kind of fix some of your pacing issues. So I think that's a really useful part of the book. But then she also shows genre considerations. She shows a lot of examples. Um, She pulls from classics as well as kind of more contemporary works to show that these 15 beats are not just something modern. It's not something that we're just stealing from screenwriters, that we actually can find this sort of storytelling method in classics that have been around forever as well as modern pieces. So it really is showing that for storytelling, there is sort of a right answer and it helps you kind of get there and prepare your book for publication. So I think it's a really great book. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. If you want kind of contemporary writing guide, I think this should be the one you grab. Cool. And neither of the other two have read it. Yeah. (laughs) You just have to take my word on it. I don't have anything to contribute, but I I think you make a compelling argument. Yeah, I have heard good things. So I definitely trust you. I've definitely heard about Save the Cat for um, film writing. It's, um, I work at a film school and we sell that book. So (laughs) if that tells you anything. Um, So I believe in and trust you. God bless. Well, so the third book we're going to talk about isn't really one singular book itself, but more of a concept. So, Rigney, do you want to explain that? Yeah. So when we were planning this out, we were thinking about, um, you know, how do you say, like, this is the essential book for all writers? Because everyone's kind of writing different things, right? You know, you might write a historical book, I might write a science fiction, etc. So 
the best way to get into the genre that you're writing is obviously to read that genre like no one's business. And so just do your research, read as much as possible, play around, you know, maybe you're doing a science fiction that's also a mystery. Well, you need to read a lot of science fiction and you need to read a lot of mystery. So we've broken down um, a few just pulling from different genres. Um, And so we're going to recommend maybe one or two books for each genre that we think you definitely should read if you're planning on writing in that genre. And then, of course, read beyond that. Don't just read this one book and then say, okay, I'm ready to write my book. Um, You need to read a lot, but we're just picking essentials, like what we think you should take from that genre. So I'll start with mystery. Um, the first mystery that I'm going to recommend to you is The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. Now, Agatha Christie is not everyone's favorite mystery writer, but she is prolific as hell. She's written probably more mystery novels than anyone else on Earth. She herself disappeared for a couple of weeks, which was a feat, and, you know, got everyone talking. So I'm going to recommend The Secret Adversary by her because I think it's one of her novels where you really see the art of mystery writing. You There's a few different twists and turns. You have a chance, actually, unlike some of her other novels, to kind of be the detective yourself and work out what happens. Um, that's not always something that's possible to do in her books, which can be frustrating, but in this one you can, and there's a lot of good twists and turns. Um, I also wanted to mention Gillian Flynn's books. Um, she, They are mysteries, but they're kind of like like horror-esque there's a lot of stuff going on in them but um Gone Girl is the one that's probably the most popular the most talked about um but I wouldn't actually say it's her best I would recommend Dark Places over that but if you want to just read um the three that she has Sharp Objects, Dark Places, and Gone Girl she is a fantastic writer and you um you will get some mystery elements from her as well. The next sort of genre we're going to touch on is fantasy. And I think there's no denying that if you want to write in fantasy, you need to read Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's too prolific. It's too kind of original. And it's too inspiring to so many other fantasy writers, especially in high fantasy. You just, you can't ignore it. Um, But like I said, it is high fantasy. And there are different categories of fantasy. So... As much as I think you should read Lord of the Rings no matter what type of fantasy you write, I do think you also need to do a little bit of research and decide what that subgenre of fantasy is that you're writing. Kind of the two that we think about most are high fantasy and low fantasy. High fantasy being a world of its own, like Lord of the Rings, and low fantasy being something supernatural encroaching on the real world or our world. Um, And I think a great example of low fantasy would be American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Um, Neil Gaiman's a fantastic writer. He's a modern writer. So unlike Lord of the Rings, you can get a little bit more of a contemporary angle. Um, But those, I think, are two really solid examples. But again, do your research, figure out what subgenre of fantasy you're writing, and really dig in to classics in that point. Thanks, Sarah. So um, I'm going to tackle romance, Um, which, you know... Romance, again, like we've kind of talked about with the previous genres, has a lot of subgenres. But I think if you're 
interested in writing romance and you really want to kind of get down to the mechanics of how that genre works and really understanding kind of where it came from, start with Pride and Prejudice. It's not the original romance novel, you know, Sense and Sensibility did technically come first, but as we discussed last month in our character development pod, um, Pride and Prejudice is the one that really influences modern romance. I think even more than Sense and Sensibility in a lot of ways, because you have the mechanics of the plot with Elizabeth Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy. You have kind of that enemies to lovers pull the tension between the two characters. You also have the antagonist with Wickham and the sort of subplot with her sister Lydia. You have so much going on with the character development and with the plot points that has carried over into modern day romance. I can't think of how many adaptations we've had of Pride and Prejudice over the years. So um, I would definitely read that book as a way to just sort of figure out how to develop your characters, how to weave your character development into the plot. Now, because romance has evolved significantly over the last couple hundred years, and even just most recently in the last five to 10 years, it really has evolved. It's changed. There are significantly more subgenres than ever before. I would recommend a couple of different more contemporary examples. I would recommend pretty much any book by Lisa Claypass. She is predominantly a historical fiction author um, and historical romance author, but she has written some contemporary and she's just a masterclass in writing romance. And if you want to learn how to get your characters on the path toward an eventual happily ever after together, you have to read Lisa. But a most recent example or a more recent example that I would recommend is The Kiss Quotient by Helen Wong. Um, it is the story of a neurodivergent woman, so not essentially an autistic woman, and a Vietnamese-American escort and how they fall in love with each other. And it's really stinking cute, guys. It's just really cute. So just go read it. It is a good one. I can recommend it for sure. I actually mentioned that book in, um, I wrote an article on our blog, plug, um, last month about mental illness in romance. And I mentioned, because she's neurodivergent, I mentioned The Kiss Quotient by yeah, Helen. It's, it's really well written. It's a great example of writing about characters that are not majority represented in mainstream either because you have a neurodivergent woman and you have an Asian American man as the um, hero in the novel. So it's just an excellent, excellent book in terms of writing characters that are not represented. Um, Wong herself is neurodivergent and she is Vietnamese American. So she she is an own voices mm -hmm. author and she just writes really well. Her books are funny. Her characters are incredible. They've got a lot of depth and I just think the story's story sweet. Like sweet. I just if you want to know how to write romance, like I can't think of anyone who has, you know, published in the last five years who kind of embodies the different elements that you want in a good romance novel better than her. Now we're going to tackle YA and middle grade fiction. Um, so I'm going to start with a classic, A Wrinkle in Time. It's just good fun. I think every kid 
should read it as they're growing up. There's a good movie to watch after, you know, with Reese Witherspoon. So you can read the book, get through that, and then have your kid watch the movie. Um, we also need to touch on the most prolific one that there could ever be, Harry Potter. I feel like we're probably going to mention Harry Potter in every podcast that we do, so we might as well just get it over with. We need like a jar to put a dollar in every time we mention Harry <laughs> yeah, Potter. And then we're starting we really to get there do. with Pride and Prejudice too. You just can't avoid it. Yeah, they're classics. What can we say? Um, so yes, I think any middle, if you're going to re- write a middle grade or young adult novel, A Wrinkle in Time or Harry Potter, good places to start. The next genre we're going to tackle, which is different from fantasy, it drives me nuts that they're lumped together, it's science fiction. So while people disagree on who technically started the science fiction genre, it is no question that Mary frickin' Shelley, the badass herself, is the one that made this genre what it is with her novel Frankenstein. If you haven't read Frankenstein and you want to write in science fiction, you're doing it wrong. I mean, she's a classic. Um, Other things that I think are great examples are 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jurassic Park, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, And one thing that I think it's important to talk about when it comes to this genre is you have to have a relatively decent understanding of the science behind it. Like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea describe a submarine. And that was before submarines came out. And when submarines did become a real world thing, people could actually draw a lot of parallels between the design in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with an actual functioning submarine. Um, You can look at Jurassic Park and you can kind of see where some of that science lies and where it's embedded in. And so I think it's important that when you're plotting your science fiction novel, you should still have fun. You should still make it funny. It's a really a great genre to be in. But you have to understand that there are certain expectations of reality in science fiction because your science has to be somewhat somewhat sound yeah we've we've talked about this before in previous podcasts but writing what you know is going to be a big thing and even though you might be making things up or you might be exploring you know new ventures I think it's important to like be grounded and really not get out there too too much Well, and I think, like, the best science fiction has an element of plausibility, whether it's, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the science of whether or not dinosaurs can be made from, you know, the DNA of... A mosquito. Mosquitoes, (laughs) right? But, like, or even some of my favorite sci-fi books are rooted in tech. And it's interesting because Mm -hmm. you look at the tech that we have now... You know, sometimes the tech that you read in these books that were maybe published 10 or 15 years ago, you're kind of just like, did these people predict the future? Like, how did did they know that this is where we would be? And, like, you can also see books that have been published in the last couple of years. I have been, like, just engulfing the... um, Chaos Rising and the other books by Jesse Mahalik over the last couple of months and the way that she talks about tech and like the weaponry of the future it's kind of like yeah look at the look at what we have now I can see the science of how we're gonna get there you know maybe a thousand years from now if the earth doesn't implode because global warming is real um But, I mean, you kind of look at it and then, you know, even something from Jurassic Park, that book is 30 years old and you've got Elon Musk being like, y'all, let's do this. 
I can figure oh, it out. That man. And it's like, bro, have you watched the movie? Let's not go there. Like, that's why sci-fi, it's actually one of my favorite genres because it can be funny. It can be smart. It can really challenge the way that you think about the world as we are living in it now and like where we've been and where we're going. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's a really cool genre. If you write in it, Godspeed because you're smarter than I am. Yeah. Also, I do want to talk about Sarah. You mentioned Mary Shelley at the top of this, you know, bulleted list, right? Of sci fi books. I want to just speak for a second about how much sci fi has been influenced by women. Hell yeah. And how frequently, how infrequently women get credited for their work in sci-fi. There are so many sci-fi authors from like the 40s, 50s, 60s that were women that had to publish under pseudonyms or under their initials. And, you know, it's always seen as like this nerdy guy thing, but so much of it really did start with Mary Shelley and has been carried by women for decades. And what sucks is women still in science fiction and fantasy have to you know, write under pseudonyms or abbreviate their initials. I talk about V.E. Schwab all the time. Mm -hmm. She's V.E. Schwab instead of Victoria Schwab, which is how she publishes in middle grade, because otherwise her publisher was like, well, no one's going to buy a book by a female in this genre. And it's truly just like disgusting that we're still stuck in this when Mary Shelley started the science fiction genre. Like... Carried it all on her back. Fuck this. (laughs) Alrighty. So um, for the final genre that we're going to tackle today, we're going to talk about horror. Now, full disclosure, none of us are horror readers. Um, I'm a big scaredy cat. So I had to take a class on horror writing like freshman year. It was like when you're required to take an English course and the teacher just like goes off and just picks whatever they want. My teacher picked horror. And I will say, like, I learned so much about the genre. It's a really cool genre. But yeah, no, I like to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I like to feel comfortable in my own skin. It's so not. I don't read it's it. It's not one of our number one picks ever. I will say I've read um, two or three Stephen King novels, and I can do that pretty well. But I mean, it's something that I have to prepare for, think about a lot, dip out and dip in and out of, you know, Um but yeah, Brittany's right. It's not It's not our first choice. That being said. We do recommend reading The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Um, I can't think of anyone more synonymous with horror other than, aside from Shirley Jackson, maybe other than Stephen King. Like, those are kind of right. the, your big two. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Stephen King is a really good writer. I'm not here to, like, disparage his legacy. However, he's, I think, a lot more commercial than Shirley Jackson. I mm, think yeah. um, they're sort of... He's male. Yeah, yeah he, he, <laughs> yes. Um, and he's a good writer. Yeah, not to disparage no, him, we, he's a good writer. We love you, Steven. Your Twitter is amazing. But yes. I think... Keep going. Something about Shirley Jackson, there's sort of this almost indie vibe to her she wasn't published independently like she was published with a major publisher but you know she's just kind of got this cult following of fans who read her books love her books they're really creepy um I have picked up The Haunting of Hill House I've read a little bit couldn't finish it like not my vibe but her books are chilling and they really do their job like they do the work they they're I don't really know 
how much else to say other than like if you want a good scare if you want to understand the mechanics of writing good horror read shirley jackson as someone who had to read her in order to pass a class yes it is spooky as fuck. <laughs> like, i will never do it again no. um other books in horror that i think you should read psycho mm. name of the author is slipping mm. me but you should read it or at least watch the films at the very least yeah. Um, and a book that you shouldn't read, but that does not get enough credit because of Will Smith is I Am Legend. It's actually like a halfway decent book. It's so different from the movie. And it's not an essential read. But while we're on the subject, I was going to say, I don't know when we're going to come back to it again. You should read it. It's so I'm much not better sure that uh, halfway decent is how we should <laughs> describe an essential book. <laughs> but but I guess if you're, in horror. if you're in the market. Psycho was written by Robert Block, by the way. There so, it is. And I would also throw, because we've talked about him, I would also throw into consideration either it or The Shining by Stephen King. I or actually misery. Misery. enjoyed, yeah, Misery, I would definitely put on there. Um, Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining, I actually preferred more than The Shining. Um, as a book, mm. the movie The Shining is better than the Doctor Sleep movie. Don't it's terrible. Don't go see it. I saw it um, in theaters a few years ago when I had like that movie pass thing, and I was able to see it for free. And I want my money back. Um, you and McGregor make some choices. Like love yeah. the guy. Like absolutely adore him, but like he makes some really bad choices. So if you're keeping track, read. Dr. Sleep, don't see the movie, watch The Shining. You could also read the book, but I think that Dr. Sleep, it, it's that's actually a really good book that I might reread. So, okay, cool. Yay, Stephen King. <laughs> Ooh, one thing though that is a fun fact about Stephen King, and again, I don't know when we're going to come back to this motherfucker, so I'm going to talk about it now. My uncle, okay. he has this whole thing that like you should not read the stand that is as it is published now because Stephen King was allowed to just put all of these parts back in. Whereas his editors on the original publishing pulled all of that stuff out. Okay. So if anyone knows where I can find a copy of The Stand. Yeah, first edition. Without Stephen King, like, shoving his stuff back in because he was prolific enough that he could say screw you to his editor. Let me know. Because okay. it is a topic of conversation at every single family holiday. Wait, oh, so what you're telling me right now is that Stephen King pulled a George Lucas and... Went back to his original yeah. stuff, put in really garbage content, and then was like, this is the ultimate version. He he made a Snyder's cut. Oh. They should mark that on the cover, I feel. Yeah. And and now I'm just, like, so paranoid every time I, like, see a Stephen King book. I'm like, oh, is this with an editor or not? Yeah. Like, it, it's created such paranoia. Well, I'll give you another fun fact about Stephen King is that he and his wife, Tabitha, um, fund the library for one of the state prisons in Maine. I'm into that. So That's a cool idea. Yeah. Yay, Stephen <laughs> Yay, King. Stephen King. <laughs> Educate your prisoners, friends. You're going to be living next to them when they get out. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so do you want to get into our debate? I don't know. Do you guys want to get into this debate? Are you ready? Can you, you handle this? Because it's debate time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So this week or month or whatever time is a construct. Um, it surely is. We are debating written text versus audiobooks. Because 
there are different ways of consuming books these days, and it's important that we decide which is better for no reason but our own <laughs> satisfaction. All right, so each of them are going to get one minute to argue their point, and then the other will rebut it, and we will carry on from there, and then I will decide with my ultimate authority who has won the debate. And the best part mm-hmm. is neither of them know which stance they are debating. So hopefully they did their research, which I know they didn't. So this is exciting. When do we ever? It's really rude, by the way. All right. <laughs> so I am going to assign the commuter Rigney Mange audio and Brittany Greenway text. Okay. okay. I will I will allow Brittany to go first. Great. Oof. Really? Ready? <laughs> No. All right. So here's my main argument for reading either a physical book or an ebook over an audiobook. And that is the narrator. Audiobooks live and die by their narrator. If you do not have a good narrator, you can't get through the book. Like, do you know how many times I've started an audiobook and hated the sound of the narrator's voice, whether it's grating or whiny or maybe it's too deep? Like, depending on who the person is reading or, like, the accents that they put on or the different voices they do for the characters, can't do it. Now, I will say that sometimes for nonfiction, it's great. However, sometimes the people that they find for nonfiction, not so great. They're too dull. They're too monotone when they read. If you're going to read a book and have it be read to you, you want to have someone who's engaging, who's interesting, that you can stand to listen to. All right. All right. All right. You hear the noise. Your time is up. Now I can't get my phone to stop it. Anyway. All right, Rigney, the rebuttal floor is yours. Okay. Now? Yes. Okay. Um, I will, I will totally agree. Yes, the voice of the narrator makes a huge difference. But the thing is, there's so many ones to choose from. The Harry Potter audiobooks are fantastic. I just listened to an audiobook, uh, like last month, it was um, nothing to see here. I can't remember the author, but we'll look it up after this debate. It was fantastic. The author, the reader had this southern voice that just I feel truly added to my experience having never read that book just in my own head. I'm not sure I would have given her that accent, but it really, I have to say, added tenfold to this book, audio, this audiobook listening experience. The best, best, best thing about audiobooks is for your road trip moments where you're just, you're going, you're like, music's not really cutting it for me right now. I need an experience. I need something to get through all right i'm being cut off i will say i had more to say but well good thing it's now an open debate floor (laughs) i mean here's the thing though like when you're reading a book don't you just love to immerse yourself in the world and like imagine the way that things look and sound on your own that's what i love about reading the book i like to be able to kind of figure out what the characters sound like in my own mind i don't want some reader coming in and being like oh that's not how I want this person to sound that that's that doesn't match up with it at all I agree but I feel like if you're going for your audiobook experience then that's you're opening yourself up to that so there's a lot of shrugging happening that you guys can't (laughs) see because this is an audio medium (laughs) 
that's true. Listen, I love a good audiobook. I'm not I'm not gonna deny that I love a good audiobook. The Star Wars audiobooks are incredible. The production quality is amazing. Highly recommend it. Like if you're looking for a good read, Star Wars audio is the way to go. But audiobooks that are great exist. But sometimes it's nice to just sit down and curl up with a book and be able to flip the pages and to get that holistic experience of actually reading. Yeah. And sometimes there's um there's a production value that's really been added and you enjoy that. And that's what you get in an audio recording. Sometimes. <laughs> All right. Often. Stop leaning into your microphones to make one word comments. I don't appreciate it. All right. I have to say I am giving the argument to Rigney solely. Thank you. For one, the commuting factor. I think audiobooks can just really go anywhere. But two... As much as a narrator can ruin it, I think the fact that we're all pointing out audiobooks with really high quality production value shows that there really is. They stick in your mind. They do. And I think they can improve your experience. Although I will agree that there is always the time to actually read a physical book. And I think if you're going to be a writer, like you need to actually read the books to see sentence structure and stuff like that. But audiobook is still getting the win. Congratulations, Rigney. You've done did it again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank my mom. I want to thank my dad. I want to thank... Audible by Amazon? Yes, Audible by Amazon. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for you this month. We hope you enjoyed it. If you disagree with any of our essential books, if you think Strunk and White are just full of shit, if you think Save the Cat writes a novel is very inconclusive because what cat are you saving? (laughs) If you think you shouldn't read anything ever in order to be a good writer, you just, you let us know. You let us know. And um, let us know your favorite books for writing. Yeah. What writing guides have really, have we, have powered you through your first draft? Anywho, that's all. See you later. Bye. Bye. Toodles. I feel sweaty. (laughs) Why? It's really hot here. (laughs) Support your local air conditioner. Yeah. I didn't want I didn't want to have mine on because it's so close to the mic. So I'm suffering through for you people. (laughs) People. (laughs) Generosity. (laughs) Let it not be forgotten. Thank you. Thank you.